Well, you all know uh, the joy of Monday mornings. The joy of Monday mornings. There you are, you know, you're sleeping in your comfy, warm bed. Pleasant dreams are running through your mind, or maybe weird dreams are running through your mind. But you are, you are deep in the land of slumber, and then it happens. That alarm goes off, right? And maybe you set your alarm to a song that you like, or maybe you have your smartwatch set to, to vibrate you awake, or maybe you're some kind of masochist who still uses that old school, you know, beeping alarm clock. It sounds like somebody's backing up a truck. How many of you still use that? Why? Why do you still use anyways? But whatever alarm you choose, it still comes into Monday morning like an invader. And with that invader comes the harsh reality that, oh no, it's Monday morning. It's Monday morning. It's not lazy Saturday morning where you can lounge around in your PJs until noon, you know, drinking coffee, thinking about what are we going to do as a family today? And it's not worshipful Sunday mornings where we get to gather together, have our hearts encouraged, fellowship with one another, just, just rejoice together in our God and his gospel. No, that alarm is telling you it's Monday morning and it's time to get back to what? Work. Back to get work. Time to get back to work. You got to get back to the grind. Time to get back to the marathon. Get back to the chase. But often, let's just be honest, we don't, we don't greet that Monday morning realization, oh, it's time to get back to work. We don't greet it with the greatest of enthusiasm, right? Sometimes, whether you work a typical nine to five to get a paycheck, to pay the bills type of job, or, or you labor at the work of being a student, studying to earn a degree or diploma, or, or, or you pour yourself in that extremely ta- out in that extremely taxing work of, of staying at home and caring for your kids and making sure the house doesn't fall apart. But whatever your job is, often we greet that call to get back to work with more of a, oh no, than a, oh yes. But why? Why is that? Why are there those moments when just thinking about our work can raise the anxiety level in our hearts? Is it simply our exhaustion? We're just, we're just too tired. Or is it, is it our boredom? The boredom that sometimes we can experience in our jobs. You know, every week it's just the same old, same old, same old. Or is it just the situations maybe that we're in? We tell ourselves, if I just had a better boss, or if I just had better coworkers. Or, or if I just had a better professor or more well-behaved kids, I wouldn't dread this work so much. But are those things really the issue? What is it about work that can bring us to that point of feeling more like, oh no, than, oh yes? What's wrong with work? What's wrong with work? Why, why does it make us feel that, that anxiety, that stress, that frustration? Why does it so drain our days and give us sleepless nights? What is wrong with work? Well, that's actually the question I want to address this morning. This morning, we're going to talk about work, but we're not going to do so in a, in a broad, general theology of work type of approach. Our brother Jake already did that this last summer as we worked through the book of Proverbs. But instead, what we're going to do this morning, we're going to deal with uh, what I'll call the dark side of work. Uh, the frustration, the, the exhaustion, the boredom, 
Even the, the dread that we can sometimes feel regarding our jobs, regarding our works, regarding our work. And as we start this discussion, what I want to do is I want to first point out that our feelings towards Monday morning, they're nothing new, right? They're nothing new. Uh, let me show you why I say that. Take your Bibles and turn over to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Our own no feelings about work. It's nothing, nothing new. And here in this, in this book of Ecclesiastes that was written thousands of years ago, we find the reflections of someone who experienced the very same feelings about work that we do. And this person who is expressing those feelings is, is the main spokesman of this book of Ecclesiastes, a fellow who goes by the Hebrew title Koaleth, or as it's rendered in the English, the preacher. And those of you who've been here, you know this fall we've been, we've been listening to this preacher a lot. We actually started last September working our way through this book of Ecclesiastes. And what we've discovered in Ecclesiastes, what we've discovered in this book and in the preacher in this book is, is someone who has some pretty challenging things to say to all of us. And his messages are not always the most encouraging. Remember, he, he begins his book, which is actually a series of sermons but he begins his series of sermons by, by telling us that his theme is simply vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Or as we've been talking about, it's all hevel. It's all hevel. That, that's actually the Hebrew word that this preacher uses, which our English translations bring across as vanity. This word hevel. And it's a word that simply means smoke or vapor. And, and that's the way this preacher... He's seeing life in this world. He's been telling us that it's, it's, it's like smoke. It's like vapor. It's elusive. It's fleeting. It's mysterious. He's been showing us that every time you think you've got a hold of it, you think you found some gain in this life under the sun, it's quickly gone. It, it slips through your fingers. It doesn't seem like you can get your mind wrapped around it. It's all hevel. And although that doesn't seem like the most encouraging message uh, to be listening to every Sunday, <laughs> what we've been learning as we've been studying this book is that this preacher's wisdom is wisdom that we definitely need. It's wisdom that we definitely need. And we need it because so often we end up chasing smoke. We chase the hevel. And, and what we do is we chase it and we hope to catch it and, and put it in our pocket and try to build our lives on it. But this preacher keeps preaching that such pursuits will only end in frustration. And that's the theme he's going to continue to unpack in our text for this morning with its specific focus on work, our work, our laboring, our toiling. This preacher is going to help us see this morning what's wrong with work. Why doesn't it give us the gain that we long for? What's wrong with work? Why doesn't it give us the gain that we long for? But here's the good news. He's not just going to show us what's wrong with it. Praise Jesus. He's also going to show us the glorious and good news about how we can fix it. He's going to show us how we can redeem our daily grind. How, how we can greet Monday morning and every morning with a radically different perspective. But before he shows us that, this preacher, as he consistently does, is going to give us a very honest assessment of things. He's going to give us a very honest assessment of work. As I've said before, this preacher is no Pollyanna. 
He doesn't look at the world through rose-colored glasses. And then he's honest with us about what he sees and how he feels about what he sees. And that's the way he's going to be when it comes to our work. So as we start in on our text this morning, let's look at the opening words of his, his honest assessment of work. If you're there in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, look at the opening line of verse 18. <clears throat> the opening line there of verse 18. What's the first thing that he says? I what? I hated. I hated all of my toil in which I toil under the sun. I hated it. I want to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever been there? with your job, you know? I hate it! Again, this, this Koleth, he has no problems sharing with us his feelings. I hate it at all. And, and as we've been seeing this, in this section of the book, um, this hatred, this is nothing new. When we were in our Ecclesiastes last, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had to deal with this preacher's pretty shocking statement there in verse, 15, verse 17. Look back at verse 17. Look at what he says there. Look at how it opens. So I hated what? I hated life. I hated life, he said. And if you remember what he was doing there, he was, he was venting his frustration with life not working uh, according to the quote-unquote rules. It wasn't working according to the rules. He had tried to live by wisdom, but he discovered that, that wisdom wasn't a magic formula to bulletproof life. Instead, suffering and tragedy and especially death Come to all of us, the foolish and the wise. And that reality brought out this preacher's frustration. And here in in verse 18, we see his frustration continue. Down in verse 20, look down at verse 20. He's actually going to tell us, look at it, verse 20. I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. You see, he's being brutally honest with us about his feelings. He's being powerfully transparent with us. And brothers and sisters, this is one of the things I love about the Bible. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. It never sugarcoats things, does it? It never sugarcoats things. Whether whether it's the poetry that we see in the Psalms or or these type of meditations here in Ecclesiastes or our Lord Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating drops of blood because of the greatness of his anxiety. The Bible is honest and real when it comes to our human feelings. Here, this preacher is showing us real, honest, human frustration. And it's a frustration that's rooted in his, his labor, his toil, his work. And one of the things that's frustrating him uh, when it comes to work is that there's no permanence in it. There's no permanence in it. He, he sees it all as so, so temporary, so fleeting. And this is part of what's wrong with work. It's part of why we can find ourselves frustrated and disappointed. The reality of work is that we all work really hard for stuff that just doesn't last. We all work really hard for stuff that just doesn't last. It's all temporary. And our possession of it is temporary. I mean, you know this. You can't take it with you, right? You know the joke, right? Never seen a a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? You know this. Well, well that's, that's the same truth that's frustrating this preacher. Look at how he puts it here in verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must what? What does he say? Okay, let's say it together. Leave it. 
Say it with me. Leave it. Okay, like five of us are getting this. Say it with me. Leave it. We must leave it. He says, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. So you can't take it with you. All the work that you do. All all the wealth that you acquire. all, All the degrees that you earn. All the lessons that you teach. You can't take any of it with you. It's all just a temporary possession. The money that you are working so hard to earn. That house that you love. That car that you enjoy. That that title on your door or on your business card or even on your child's lips. Mommy. Daddy. It's all just a temporary possession. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter how hard you work to earn it. I mean, you could be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. You could be the employee of the month, six months running. You could be the best dad on the block. You could be the best mom in your mops group. You could be the best athlete in your sport. You could be the school valedictorian. You could be the retiree with the sweetest pension. None of those things will last. None of them. And again, it doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how much you labor and toil. None of those things are your situation, your status, your possession forever. All our work just gives us hevel stuff for our hevel lives. You're like, oh, I'm so glad I came to church this morning. Get all encouraged. (laughs) It's just hevel stuff for our hevel lives. It's just vapor possessions for our vapor existence. Just like our life, all of those things, our titles, our wealth, our possessions, our accomplishments, they're here today and they're gone tomorrow. No matter how hard you work to earn it, no matter how hard you work, one day you will leave it all behind. There's no permanence to any of it. Any of it. And who gets it next? Who gets it next? As all those things pass out of your hands and pass into the hands of another, what will that person be like? That's another issue here that's frustrating this koala. It's not just that that all the results of his hard work are are temporary and fleeting. They'll have to leave them all behind. But it's that he has no clue about who he's actually leaving things for. Again, look at our text. Look at the text starting in verse 18. I hated all my toil. In which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows? Who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity, it's evil. So I turned and gave my heart up to despair over all my toil, all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill... Must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Now let me help you understand what this preacher is doing here. Here here what he's doing is he is addressing our our common reasons for for chasing work like we do. First, sometimes we work so hard because we think that we're going to find something lasting in it. 
We hope to find, find that gain that we are hungering for, whether that's in a new title or a new possession or, or, or a fat 401k. We work like, like our work is, is helping us to build something lasting. It's going to give some, some purpose, some meaning to our life, something lasting. But it's not. Preachers told us that. One day we're going to leave it all behind. However, as he continues here, he he addresses a second motivation for all of our hard work. Often we can be motivated to work hard because we want to leave an inheritance behind. We think, we think, if I work really hard, I can leave my kids in a better situation. I'll build something lasting for my family. I'll give them, I'll give them all the things I never had. I'll give them this great and rich material inheritance. But here this preacher is going to attack them, that motivation as well. And, and here's the thing. I want to make sure you're clear on this. It's not, it's not that it's a bad thing to leave something behind for your family. Okay? Don't misunderstand what we're talking about here in the text. The problem is that if that's your driving motivation in your work, you might end up pretty disappointed. You might end up pretty disappointed. I mean, you could work your fingers to the bone trying to leave your family everything. But when they get it... Who knows how that will go for them? Remember in the hands of the prodigal son, how did that inheritance work out for him? His inheritance became a tool, right, for his demise. It it greased the skids to his ruin. That inheritance with that sinful heart led to all kinds of problems. So what you're working hard to leave behind will actually prove beneficial to those to whom you're leaving it for. And, and will they actually appreciate what you've given them? I mean, you know this, you know this. Those who work hard for something are often those who appreciate it most, right? Those who work hard for something are often those who appreciate it most. They weren't give, just given the knowledge, they had to learn it. They, they weren't just handed the wealth, they had to earn it. They weren't just given that skill or that ability or that talent, they had to work and acquire those things. So, so those who work hard for something are those, usually those who appreciate it most. And this is something this Koalith understood. Look again at the text. Look at how he puts it in verse 21. Sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who has wisdom and knowledge and skill. Is that what it says? No. Someone who didn't work for it. You see, that someone often doesn't realize the blood, the sweat, the tears that went into acquiring those things. They didn't, didn't learn the lessons that the person who acquired those things learned along the way. They, they didn't have their character built up by the process that the person acquiring those things, had his character, she had his, her character built up. Said so it was just, there you go, handed to them. And, and this preacher here he goes so far as to say, look at the text, this is vanity and a great evil. You see that there in the end of verse 21. Now, I want you to understand another way to translate that phrase, a great evil, is the way that the New Living Translation brings it across. I think this might be a better translation of it. It's a great tragedy. It's a great tragedy. So sometimes, all of the wealth we worked for only leads to tragedy in the lives of those to whom we, we leave it. You all heard of, or maybe you... You've had the unfortunate experience of being part of a, a family fighting over the inheritance. 
that's left to them, right? Heard of those things? Maybe, again, you've had the unfortunate experience of being part of that. And what happens? People start fighting. People get all ticked off, get all upset. They get all bitter. They stop talking to one another. Sometimes it goes on for years. And so, so that wealth that was worked so hard for and left to that family to help that family only served to do what? To divide that family. It becomes a tragedy. Tragedy in their lives. And that's similar to what happened in the life of this Koaleth. As we've talked about in our study of Ecclesiastes, Koaleth, or, or, or the preacher, it's just a title, just a literary device that Solomon, the actual author of this book, is using. And so he is speaking to us, he's speaking to us through this title, but it's his life and his experiences that, that are guiding his writing. And in his life, you know this, Solomon acquired great wealth in his life. And he left an unmatched inheritance for his son named, you may remember, Rehoboam. Rehoboam. He saw this great inheritance, this great kingdom for his son named Rehoboam. But it all proved to be an epic disaster in Rehoboam's hands. You see, Solomon's son turned out to be a really foolish leader. And within a very short amount of time, the kingdom that his father left him erupted into civil war. And 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel turned against Rehoboam as their king. So almost as quickly as he'd been given an inheritance, Rehoboam lost 10 twelves or or five-sixths of his inheritance. Almost lost it all. And and the effects of his folly lasted for, for generations. Generations. And you know this. His story is not unique. In history. It's not unique. It's actually a story that history repeats over and over and over again. More times than we can count. People who get this great inheritance. The son that gets this great inheritance. And what do they do? They squander it. And it leads to tragedy. So yes, it's not a bad thing. To leave some kind of material inheritance for your family. But please don't be so blind as to think that you're leaving, them be, leaving behind for them something Sure. Or stable. Because you're not. You're not. So, so we work. But we work for that which is temporary. That which is fleeting. That which is unstable. We, we can't take it with us. And we can't guarantee what's done with it once we're gone. So, so this preacher, he's looking into the future. And he's, show, he's showing us that, that there's not going to be the gain in our work that we might hope we could find. But then he, he turns here from, from looking at that frustrating future to exploring the painful reality of work in the present. <laughs> you see, the problem with work isn't, that, isn't just that there's no permanence to it. It's also that it's painfully exhausting. Can I get an amen on that one? Work can be painfully exhausting, right? Work in this world is hard. That's a re- Ryan, can I get an amen on that one? <laughs> Our brother here, you can pray for him. He's been, he's been burning the midnight oil and then some extra oil and... Uh, He's working hard. But it's reality. Work can be painfully exhausting. Look at how the preacher puts it here in verses 22 and 23. He says, What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. 
Here, as this preacher describes work as full of sorrows and a vexation, as he describes it that way, you guys need to hear the echoes of Genesis chapter 3. You need to hear the echoes of Genesis chapter 3. If you remember Jake, in his message, he pointed out that work is part of original creation. So, so man and woman, they were created to tend the garden, to fill the earth, to subdue it. They were given work to do, and that work was good. It was part of God's good creation. Work is good. But then, what happened? They rebelled. And the consequences of that rebellion hit everything, including our work. We know Sister Carla just went through this a few days ago. But we know that God told the woman that, that he would multiply her pain in childbearing. <clears throat> but then listen to what God said to the man. Listen to this. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In pain. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face, the sweat of your brow, you shall eat your bread till you return to the ground. In other words, all the days of your life, work is now going to be hard. And that's a reality that we all live in, men and women. That, that judgment upon Adam, it hit all of us. It hit all of us. Work is now hard. It's now painful. And, and our efforts in work are often frustrated. Whether it's your supervisor who cares more about his year-end bonus than truly giving the employees the resources that they need. Or it's your customers who just keep complaining no matter how hard you work to serve them. Or it's your students who would rather hijack your lecture than actually learn from it. Our efforts, our labors in this world are often greeted with frustrating obstacles. We all know the thorns and thistles of work, right? In a, in a metaphorical sense, we all know those things. Those obstacles that frustrate us. We, all, we also all know the vexation that can come with work. <clears throat> That's the way that the ESV translates this Hebrew noun here in verse 23. Work is a vexation. But if you have another translation, you might see that it brings it across as painful or burdensome or grievous. So there can be a grief, a grieving in our work as it exhausts us, as it frustrates us, as it disappoints us, and even as it fails us. We try to accomplish great things, right? We try to accomplish great things, but things seldom go according to plan. Things seldom go according to plan. And that reality doesn't ever seem to leave us alone. Look at the next line there in verse 23. Look at the next line in verse 23. Right after talking about this vexation of work, we read, even in the night, his, the laborer's heart does not rest. Doesn't rest. This last week, as I was at that Acts 29 conference, <laughs> I met with a, a group of pastors who had planted churches about the same size as our church. And as we were talking, we were asked to share, share one of the resources that we found particularly helpful and one of the pastors said, that one of the resources I found particularly helpful, resource I want to share, is a weighted blanket. He said, you guys all, you all need to get a weighted blanket. But, but when we chuckled, like you were chuckling, he then pointed out a reality that we all identified with. The 2 a.m. wake up. The 2 a.m. wake up. You see, for us pastors, um, you guys are always on our hearts. The church is always on our hearts. 
And sometimes that burden, it wakes you up at two in the morning. But this weighted blanket was helping this brother (laughs) to get past that 2 a.m. wake up and get some good sleep. So he reminded us that anything that can help you get more healthy sleep, that's a good resource. So he said, get yourself a weighted blanket. But, But you know this. Pastors aren't the only one who, who experience that, that middle of the night. Wake up. I'm sure there are a lot of us who, who find our sleep constantly threatened by our worries about work. Commentator Philip Ryken, he aptly points this out. He says, think of all of the worry that work brings. Sometimes we are anxious about having enough work to support ourselves and our families. Other times, we have so much work that we worry about getting it all done. And it would help if we could get a full night's sleep. But instead, we are awake in the night obsessing about today's on-the-job conflict or worrying about tomorrow's big project. So what's wrong with work? Well, it's a grind. It's a painfully exhausting grind. It's a painfully exhausting grind that often won't leave us alone. And it's a painfully exhausting grind for things that will not last things that we cannot take with us and that hold no certainty for the people to whom we leave them. So what do we do with work? How do we fix this? Can we fix this? The frustration, the discouragement. How do we deal with this? Well, before we look this morning at what the preacher says, let me ask you, think with me a moment with me for a moment about what our culture says. How does our culture answer this question? What, what advice does our culture give with, with dealing with the, the burdens or the frustrations of work? Take a moment to think about that. I was thinking about it, I thought, there, there's kind of two big approaches that I see. The, the, the old approach, the old answer is what? Just bear down, right? Just bear down. Just get, grit your teeth and power through it. Yeah, it's hard, but this is what you need to do to put food on the table, to put a roof over your head. Just bear down. And get through it. I think that's, that's the old approach. The old answer. But more recently our culture has, has offered a new answer. Thrown out a new approach. And that new approach is. Just find a job that makes you happy. Just find a job that makes you happy. Do what you love. Find yourself. And then, then find what fills your sails. <laughs> you know what? There, there's some big problems with both of those approaches. First for the person that just bears down. They can end up at a point in life often, maybe towards the end of their career, wondering what in the world it's all been about. What's it all been about? They may feel like we, we fought so hard, we worked so diligent, we've been so loyal, but for what? A little retirement party that'll be shown the door? What was the point? But, but I don't know if the new approach is that much better. And I say that because I think we see far too many people who are in their late 20s, early 30s, they're still living in their parents' basement, they're still trying to figure out what it is that they love, what it is that fills their sails, what it is that they should do with their life. They're just, they're just kind of stuck. Or, or they're, they're, they're taking class after class after class at the university, trying to figure out what scratches that itch. And, and they're suffering that paralysis by, or analysis by paralysis. Paralysis by analysis. There we go. I got it right. They're thinking too much and they're stuck. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> But the old approach might, might offer people to end that feeling of frustration. But I think that new approach often leaves people just standing still. You know? And then they're like, man, I'm spending all this time and, and I'm still not anywhere. 
So I don't think either approach really delivers us from our frustrations, the exhaustions, or the disappointments. So what will? Is there anything that will? Well, look again at the text. Again at the text. And starting here in verse 24, something radical starts happening in this book. We find a radical turn, a radical shift in this book. Listen to how one commentary describes what happens starting here in verse 24. He writes, nothing can prepare us for what happens next in Ecclesiastes. Because suddenly the book takes a surprising turn. Without warning, the preacher says the first truly positive thing in the entire book. We've been slogging through and now we get something new. He says these verses, the verses we're going to look at next, verses 24 to 26. He says they are an oasis of optimism in a wilderness of despair. As such, he continues, they, may, they mark a turning point in Ecclesiastes. Not just on the subject of work, but for the argument of the book as a whole. So these are some important verses. So let's look at these verses. Let's look at this, this oasis of optimism. Starting here in verse 24, look at what we read. Verse 24. There is nothing better. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink. And what does it say next? What does it say? Find enjoyment in his, in his toil. Wasn't this guy who just was just saying, I hate it? He says, there's nothing better for a person than, than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to the one who pleases God. As also his vanity and his striving after wind. Here, here we're coming across some big changes in this book. For, for the first time, this preacher is actually hitting us with a positive message. He, he is talking about God and he's talking about the, the enjoyment that we find with him and in him. And really, other than a passing note in chapter 1, this is the first time that the preacher has talked much about God being in the picture at all. But here when God arrives... Things radically change. Things radically change. That great reformer, Martin Luther, said of this part of Ecclesiastes, it is a remarkable passage. One that explains everything preceding and following it. It is the principal conclusion. In fact, the point of the whole book. So these are very important verses. And these are important verses because they call us to embrace a radically different perspective. And notice... That this radically different perspective opens by calling us to see what is best. The preacher tells us, look at verse 24. There is, what does it say? Nothing better. Boy, we read right past that, don't we? There is nothing better for a person. So this, what he's going to tell us, this is the very best. What he's going to tell us is the very best. It's better than you trying to find a job that makes you happy. It's better than you working real hard to try to climb that corporate ladder. It's better than you exhausting yourself to try to be the the best mom on Instagram or the star pupil of your favorite professor or the most engaging and captivating pastor. We might struggle to accept what this text says, but what the preacher is going to tell us here is this is what is the very best. So are you ready for what is the very best? Are you ready? Are you ready for this radical change in perspective that changes everything? This is big time stuff. 
You're going to be happy you came this morning. This is important. So here it is. You ready? You ready? You and I need to start seeing life as a gift, not as a source of gain. You need to start seeing your life in this world and all the things attached to it, this life under the sun, as a gift, not as a source of gain. You need to start seeing your job, your education, your career, your family, your marriage, your ministry, your very life, not as a source of gain, but instead as a gift. You see, we keep chasing, right, brothers and sisters? We keep chasing all this heavy stuff, all this smoke, all this vapor. We're trying to catch it, trying to put it in our pocket, trying to define our life by it, right? We keep running to it for gain. But it will leave us empty-handed every time. Every single time. Instead, we need to see life as a gift. We need to see life as a gift from God. We need to see life as a gift from God to be enjoyed. Again, look at the text. Look at how this preacher calls us to this radical change of perspective. Again, look at verse 24. There is nothing better. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw this from the, the hand of God. All of this, all of this life, all of it is a gift from God, given to us by God to be embraced and to be enjoyed. But, <laughs> before we start thinking that this radical change in perspective is some kind of call to a, a hedonistic, self-indulgent life. You know, life is just it's a gift from God, so I'm just going to eat and drink and enjoy it to the full. Just, just hedonistic, self-indulgent approach. Let me call your attention to one crucially important little phrase here. You see it there in the start of verse 25. Look at it. For, apart from him. We struggled in this earlier, but we'll try it again. Say it with me. Apart from him. Let's do it again. Apart from him. Look at the text. Apart from him who can eat and who can have enjoyment. So so this little phrase is so crucial to understanding this, this radical change in perspective. You see, life is a gift from God to be enjoyed. Listen, to be enjoyed in relationship with God. It's a gift from God to be enjoyed in relationship with God. And you were made for this. You were made for this. You and I, we were made for a relationship. We were made for a relationship with God. The old Puritans and that great shorter catechism that they created, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it opened with this first question. Remember, what is the chief end of man? And remember their answer? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him for five minutes, just in the high seasons, to enjoy him forever. To enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. Life is a gift from God to be enjoyed with God. That that was true, brothers and sisters, back in the garden. And guess what? It's still true today. Praise Jesus. It's still true today. However, here's the problem. We jacked up the relationship, right? We messed it up. 
We turned from the creator and we turned to the things that he created. And we tried to find our gain and our fulfillment in them. We all became idolaters. We started looking at the creation. Looking to our own, own abilities as creatures. In order to try to find purpose. And meaning. And wisdom. And fulfillment. And joy. We, we've rebelled, all of us. Against God's good design to find all of those things. All of life in Him. Instead, we started running other things. We are all rebellious sinners chasing smoke living lives with empty hands and frustrated hearts but praise God praise God in in his grace praise God in his grace he didn't just leave us to suffer the eternal consequences of our foolishness and our folly and our smoke chasing and our sin praise God he didn't just leave us to suffer the eternal consequences of that instead what did he do he sent his son amen He sent Jesus Christ to show us the reality of life lived in fellowship with God. And his life, Jesus' life, was a life lived with God and for God. It was with his father and for his father. And for God, for his father. In obedience to his father, he then went to the cross for you and for me to pay for our rebellion. To pay for our sinfulness. To pay for our stupid, foolish, smoke chasing. And to remove, praise Jesus, the hostility that stood between us. Us and God in that relationship. To remove that hostility. And turn our hearts back to the one we were created to enjoy. And now, all of those who by faith put their faith in Jesus, they receive that gift of salvation. We receive that that gift of new life. We receive that gift of God himself. And we can enjoy that gift. Here and now, if you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ, guess what? You're still stuck chasing smoke. Sorry. That's reality. But if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can now enjoy the life you were created to enjoy. Life with God. You can enjoy it here and now. Through Jesus Christ, by the spirit that he gives, we can recover Eden here and now as we fellowship again with our creator. Instead of living apart from him, we we live in him. Instead of looking for our gain outside of him, we find it with him. Instead of living like work is our God or family is our God or education is our God, we need to realize that none of those things will give us the peace, the joy, and the satisfaction that we can find only in him. Only in him. Again, look at verse 25. I love this. For apart from him, who can eat or who can know enjoyment? So seeing life as a gift instead of our source, again, it starts with, with learning to fellowship with God. In all of life. It starts with, it starts with learning how to recognize his presence. That he's with you. In all of life. It, it, starts, it starts with seeing all of those moments in your life. As moments you're walking through. Not by yourself. Not trusting in your own strength. Trusting in your own wisdom. They're moments you're walking through. With your Lord. It's reminding yourself. That he's there with you. 
when that Monday morning alarm clock goes off and you go, oh no. <laughs> he, he's there with you when your boss is having a bad day and he's taking it out on you. He's there with you when the homework is piling up or when your kids won't listen or when the paycheck arrives and it wasn't the paycheck that you were expecting. He's with you in the frustrations. He's with you in the exhaustion. He's with you in the boredom and even in the despair. And he's with you to fellowship with you and to teach you about himself. He's there to show you his strength when you got none. He's there to, to give you his peace when peace seems so far from coming. He, he's there to give you his love, remind you of his love when all those around you seem so unloving. He's there to show you that the gain that you long for is, founded in the, is found in the place where you were created to find it. In him alone. So, we learn to fellowship with him, living, living a true, truly prayerful life. You know, Paul talks about pray without ceasing. So this is what he's talking about. Just that fellowship, that constant fellowship with the Lord. So living a truthful, truly prayerful life. Engage with him in all the moments of life. And then from that place of fellowship, we express our joyful love through obedience. From that place of fellowship, we express our joyful love through obedience. We discover the joy of obedience, the freedom and the, the radical liberating change in living life, not for us and for our selfish desires, but for him and for his glory. Look again at verse 26. It says, for to the one who pleases him, pleases him. So, so from that place of fellowship with him in this gift that is our life, we then learn to love pleasing him. As we fellowship with him and this gift is life, we then learn to love pleasing him. We, we take his gifts and, and we use them to glorify him in fellowship with him, delighting ourselves in him. We live as Jesus prayed. Remember the prayer? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy, not mine. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, we stop living like, like we're working to try to build our kingdom. And we realize that delight is found in seeing the coming of his kingdom. As Christians, it shouldn't be about climbing the corporate ladder for us. It shouldn't be about climbing the corporate ladder for us. It shouldn't be about building some kind of legacy for us. It shouldn't be about getting that fat 401k or getting that beautiful new home or, or being the envy of all of our neighbors. And why did I say it? Because it's not about us. It's not. Chasing all that stuff will leave you chasing smoke. Instead, life is about enjoying the gifts that God has given you in your job, on your, with your family, in your life, in the church. Enjoying him, fellowshipping with him, and then using all those gifts for him. For him. That's about living in fellowship with him and loving to please him. And to the one who lives that way, to the one who lives that way, who lives for his kingdom, not theirs, know that God will take care of you. Right? God will take care of you. Isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said it, right? He told us, Matthew chapter 6, do not be anxious about your life, about what you will eat or what you will drink. Nor about your body, what you will put on. 
Is not life more, we need to hear this, is not life more than food, nor the body more than clothing? Because sometimes we think that's what it's all about, right? Material possessions. But Jesus says, is not the life more, more than food and the body more than clothing? But what does he say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Jesus says that there, Matthew 6. We find something similar here in the text. Looking at verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Praise God. God is a God who loves to bless us. Amen. He is a, God who, he is a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. So, so as we live in fellowship with him, delighting in him, delighting to please and glorify him, he, he showers us. He showers us with his wisdom. He showers us with his knowledge. He showers us with his joy. And guess what? There isn't anything better than that. There isn't anything better than the joy of the Lord. There isn't anything better than knowing our God. There isn't anything better than the wisdom of our God. But in case that invitation isn't enough for you, Enjoying life with God, glorifying God, knowing his wisdom, knowing his knowledge, knowing his joy. There's a warning here in the text in case that invitation isn't good enough for you. You see, if you, if you want, you can just keep working hard and, and having this life apart from fellowship with God, living for yourself, working for yourself, living for what won't last. But then the text tells you you're going to watch that all just slip right through your fingers. That's what the end of verse 26 is about. Look at it. But to the sinner, the one who doesn't make life about fellowship with God, delighting in God, knowing God, the relationship with God, glorifying God. But to the sinner, he, God, has given the business of gathering and collecting. You work for all the stuff, only to what? Only to what? To give it to the one who pleases God. So go ahead and chase that vanity. Chase that striving after wind. You see, those who belong to God, they will inherit the world. They will inherit the world. One day, the new heavens and the new earth, they will be their possession. They will be our possession to enjoy with God forever. But if that's not what you're about, if, if your life is about living for you instead of living for God, if you have turned from him and you are just living for yourself, guess what? Then you're just living as a placeholder. I know it sounds harsh, but that's what the text says. You're just living as a placeholder. And one day, all that stuff that you're working for is no longer going to be yours. Your life will be over. And emptiness is going to be all that you're holding. So what's wrong with work? What's wrong with work? Well, nothing, if we approach it the right way. But our problem is that so often we don't. So we need to fix our perspective, brothers and sisters. We need to fix our perspective by first acknowledging the reality of work in this fallen world. We need to acknowledge the reality of work in this fallen world. It's all temporary and fleeting. What we work for, our career, our wealth, our titles, our positions, our possessions, none of it is going to last. Even the inheritance that we leave behind is, is far from a certain thing. And work itself, because of the fall, can be exhausting and vexing, and it can grieve us. And that's why, second, we need to seek to redeem our work. We need to seek to redeem our work, and we redeem it by seeing it as a gift from God. A gift from God. 
Your job is a gift from God. Your education is a gift from God. Caring for your family or homeschooling your kids or even your retirement years, that's a gift from God. But they are a gift to be enjoyed with God for the glory of God. Our lives need to be about delighting in God and his kingdom, not trying to find gain to build ours, brothers and sisters. So we fix our approach to work by a radical transformation of our perspective. We stop viewing it as a source of gain and security, and instead we see it as a gift to be enjoyed with our God for the purposes of our God. So are you seeking work that way? Are you seeing work that way? Let me ask you, I mean, really think about this. Are you fellowshipping with God on your job? Are you seeking to know him better in those moments where you can redeem those really frustrating moments as you lean into the Lord? And then are you longing to use your job, to use your, your skills, your opportunities for his glory, his kingdom, not for yours, not for your gain? If that's your view of work, then guess what? There's nothing wrong with it at all. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with work for you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your word. <sighs> Left to ourselves, we would just be fumbling and bumbling around in the darkness. We would be frustrated with our jobs. We'd try to be listening to just all the things our culture spews at us. Here's how to fix it. And we'd still be frustrated. So we thank you for both the, the honesty of your word, that, that it reflects the way we feel about things. When, when this preacher says, I hated the toil, that resonates with us. We know that frustration. We thank you for your word, that it brings us into that. But then it doesn't leave us there. And I just praise you for that. It shows us how to redeem these things. And I thank you that we redeem it through that relationship that we've been given with you through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I pray for those who are here this morning who maybe they've heard a lot of talk about the gospel and maybe they even understand some of the particulars about the gospel, about our sin and Jesus living and dying for us and rising again to give us forgiveness of sin and righteousness and that's all ours through faith in him. Maybe maybe they understand some of the particulars, but I pray today that by your spirit you would meet with them and show them that hope, salvation, real life is found only through faith in Christ. Because all those things are found in you and we can't come to you without Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would, you would convict their hearts today. Maybe people here that have been thinking for a long time, yeah, yeah, I think I'm a Christian. But there is no desire for relationship with you. Show them the deadness of their supposed faith and give them true saving faith that hungers for you and sees Jesus Christ as the only way to you. And I pray for those of us who, who have, have fallen into difficulty with really understanding and, and practicing that relationship with you. And we've gotten all, all mixed up in our jobs and we think that's what you know, we're, we're chasing and we've got all this weight and this burden from the stress of that or the stress of our families or whatever. 
remind us that you are right there with us. And you long for us to see that and to fellowship with you in that. And to find your strength and to find your joy in that. And, and, and you long for us just to surrender some of those things. And say, not my will, but yours be done. Your kingdom come. And to see the freedom in that. Because we're living life as we were made to live it. So I pray for our hearts. By your spirit, take the, take the truths that we've talked about this morning. And just plant them down deep in us. Bring them to light tomorrow when that Monday morning alarm goes off. Bring them to light the next day when there's situations with the coworkers or situations with the boss or situations with, with the kids. Help those in our congregation who are retired and going, what do I do now? Help them see that they fellowship with you and they live life for your glory. And you've given them all kinds of opportunities to do that. Help us to really grab hold of this radical perspective that changes everything. Thank you so much for this book of Ecclesiastes and the truth that it's teaching us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.